Good evening and welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. Tonight on the show we have a special guest, Joanna Nelson, Ph.D. Joanna is the Director of Science and Conservation Planning at the Save the Redwoods League. She is also one of the newer members of the Jackson Advisory Group and is going to talk to us about today's JAG meeting. We also have an interview with a member of the Friends of Little Bear from down in Southern California. This group recently slowed down and mitigated and eventually stopped an ill-conceived fuel reduction plan in a unique alpine island forest in Southern California's mountains. That is coming up on this edition of the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. And take it away, Gene Parsons, live from Camp One Amphitheater at the Mendocino Woodland. Before we go to our interview with Joanna Nelson, I would like to provide a little background information to bring listeners up to speed. The subject of our interview and many of our shows is JDSF, Jackson Demonstration State Forest. Jackson, at 80 square miles, is California's largest state forest. Jackson was purchased by the state from Casper Lumber Company for $1.5 million in 1947, when Jackson had over 10 square miles of ancient forest and another 20 square miles of forest that had only been logged once. Now, tragically, there is less than one mile of old growth and five square miles of true second growth. Most of Jackson is a mixed conifer forest with coast redwoods, the dominant species. However, within the forest are many different ecotypes. This gem of a forest is a hot spot of biodiversity with a minimum of over 1,200 species present, not including insects and microscopic life. Jackson is ostensibly owned by the California public and managed by Cal Fire. But to be clear, this is stolen, unceded land of the northern Pomo and Coast Yuki peoples who had created hundreds of miles of trails through it, trails that existed for hundreds to thousands of years. The the trails connected settlements inland and on the coast to ridgetop sites such as Three Chop Village. Cal Fire manages the forest with the primary mandate of commercial timber harvest and demonstration of silvicultural methods, but has faced nearly 30 years of resistance to this policy. In the last two years, a movement of environmental groups and tribal peoples has coalesced in conjunction with Governor Newsom's Executive Order 1519, which calls for tribal co-management of state properties. The Coalition to Save Jackson, through direct action, advocacy, publicity, and art has created a space for change. Three THPs were withdrawn, an unprecedented development. Five timber harvest plans that were under development are on hold, but Cal Fire is determined to move forward with the five timber sales that were already sold to mills. The primary acceptable avenue for public input is the Jackson Advisory Group, the JAG, which many advocates believe is not enough. Still, with the pressure of the coalition, the JAG has become a much more open body. 
including representatives such as Kashaya Pomo Tribal Chairman Reno Franklin and our guest, ecologist Joanna Nelson. With that, let's move on to the interview. I'm speaking with Joanna Nelson, the Director of Science and Conservation Policy for the Save the Redwoods League. Joanna, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Chad. You're welcome, and thanks for taking the time after this long day on the JAG. Yep. Can you tell us about the Save the Redwoods League briefly? Give us a summary of what it does for listeners who aren't familiar. Save the Redwoods League is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to protect and restore California redwoods and connect people to the peace and beauty of redwood forests. The League protects redwoods by acting as a land trust, purchasing land, or um, holding a conservation easement, and the surrounding lands needed to protect them. We restore redwood forests with stewardship, and by protecting more than 200,000 acres and helping to create 66 redwood parks and reserves, the League builds connections between people and redwoods, especially those who have historic and current barriers to access to nature and redwoods. Mm-hmm. You've done some amazing things recently with the purchase of an old growth area in Anderson Valley. Um, how did you raise the money for that? We have an incredible donor team, and in that case, I would I would direct you to our protect team for the details. But I know that some PG and E mitigation funding made that possible for the transfer to the Intertribal Sinkion Wilderness Council. Yeah, that's actually different than the one I was thinking of. Okay. But that's amazing too. Can you lay out for us what you do with the Save the Redwoods League? Yep, as the director of science and conservation planning. I direct the League's scientific research programs and what I call science to action. So what do we need to know to do better work on the ground? Some of our research programs um, include the Redwoods and Climate Change Initiative and the Redwood Genome Project so that we can learn more about genetic diversity as a factor in redwood conservation. We also host a modest granting program where academic and indigenous researchers apply for funding to do their work in either coast redwoods or giant sequoias. Mm -hmm. And how would somebody apply for that? Um, We just had our annual deadline, but they would track our website and we're happy to, we're getting the word out with as many networks as we have and their networks and an upcoming program that we have is the Redwoods Research Starter Grant, which is for undergrad and graduate students um, from minoritized communities, so Mm -hmm. Black, Indigenous, Asian American Pacific Islander, Latine, and other people of color. That one's due on Friday, so it's coming right up, but people would find (laughs) out by looking at our website and um, letting us know that they want to be one of these nodes of network communication. Yeah, yeah. A little too late for this year. So it's a once a year deadline? Yeah. Okay. We will try to have you on next year and with a lot of, of advance notice so people can find out about it. Thank you. So your title includes conservation planning. What does conservation mean to you? Some people, a lot of us feel now that the word conservation isn't enough, that it contains an inherent compromise that's based on the dichotomy of either extracting or conserving resources when the view of many of us is, is that we as a race need to return to traditional ecological values where we aren't looking at the earth as a resource to be extracted. How do you feel about this? 
I really hear and appreciate the values inherent in that. And the work that I do in conservation is about nature protection and stewardship. And where I align completely is we need to talk about humans as part of nature. So there isn't the extract it or draw a circle around it as a boundary and stay out of it, right? Or remove people from it and then call it conserved. So I agree with you that we need to update that understanding and know that we're caretakers and be really mindful is important to me to say that traditional ecological knowledge belongs with indigenous people and that I can continue to educate myself and be a good steward of nature. Mm -hmm. I know this is a sidetrack from questions I gave you, but um, could you speak at all about the Redwoods Rising Project? Yeah, I'd be happy to. That's a project in Redwood National and State Parks. And it is formally a partnership. So in terms of a memorandum of understanding between Redwood National Park and the state parks that are affiliated in Redwood National and State Parks and Save the Redwoods League. It's also a really strong partnership with Yurok Tribe and their aquatics program where they've done a lot of the stream restoration from planning to implementation. And what does it do? Um, one, one piece is beyond the old growth forest that's protected there is looking at 70,000 acres of pretty even aged second growth or third growth forest and what it means to restore it towards an old growth trajectory Mm -hmm. for the forest. It's doing road removal and restoration. So there's not so much sediment into the creeks and there's aquatic restoration. Mm -hmm. So 70,000 acres is huge area to take on over kind of a 20 year horizon is a lot of the planning that I've seen. Mm -hmm. And there's a video about this. A few videos about this. Where can people see these? Yes. I will say start at our website, savetheredwoods.org. And I will look into another video that I'm thinking of um, that's more aquatic focused. We'll have that right at the end of the interview. Um, so you are on the Jackson Advisory Group. How long have you been on it? I My appointment was completed in May of this year. So the May meeting was my first meeting. And were you, did you seek it out or did they seek you out? Um, We got an invitation. We received an invitation at Save the Redwoods League to be part of the Jackson Advisory Group, knowing that a forest conservation seat was open. And so I went through the application process. And why is it important for the Redwood League and for you to be involved? I think this is the league brings a wonderful perspective because we work throughout the entire range of coast redwoods and giant sequoias, but I'll focus on coast redwoods. So from the Big Sur area to the California-Oregon border, and we have a regional or whole range perspective to bring, and we have the perspective of what does restoration practice look like? What does a restoration economy look like? What does it mean to um, set forests on a trajectory again towards old growth structure Mm -hmm. and function? Because that doesn't mean just wait a thousand years and you'll have old trees. It means clumps and gaps and spacing that promotes diversity and big trees growing. 
Yes, yes. So today was one of the long Jackson Advisory Group meetings. What was your takeaway? I see a public and, and many communities. I don't see the public as a monolith. Many communities showing up consistently to take action for the forest and to uh, honor the multiple indigenous groups and native nations involved. And I think it's really a stuck point to have people requesting stop logging or stop logging until we have more agreements or a new management plan. And then to have a response of we're going to keep logging because we have existing contracts and we can go all the way back to a 1947 legislative mandate that says this will be a commercial forest. So that's a pretty sticky deadlock. And I think more of the working towards what is it that we all want this forest to be or what are the multiple things we want this forest to be and where do those align? That's, that's one of my takeaways. Mm-hmm. What did you see when you were out there? Um, we went to, we res- the um, Cal Fire responded to a public letter about, would you please go to the intersection of these roads and look at logs that seem to be much larger than the cutoff of 48 inches diameter at Brastite. So um, that was a beginning of our tour. And we also went to a shaded field break at Mitchell's Creek. Um, we had some interim time where we had, you know, an agenda business list, that things that we were going through. Mm-hmm. What did you see at the shaded field break? What happened there? That was the end of the day. So it was almost dark. So we had a handful of people left from the public. And I really appreciated the collaborative part of the day where, um, for example, Unit Chief Luke Kendall showed us the plans, well, some potentials for what we might do in a shaded fuel break. And somebody from UC Cooperative Extension explained more about shaded fuel breaks. And Chief Kendall said, this is how we would use them to respond to wildfire. Shaded fuel breaks give us this area to stage and respond. And we want to know what the community wants. So we're having a community meeting tomorrow mm-hmm. at 6 p.m. And I think the back and forth that needs to happen between hearing what community members know and want and where community members are asking for the expertise. Well, we want the kind of shaded field break that can best protect against most wildfires. So asking for that expertise and then needing to be able to trust it as those plans come back to them. Mm -hmm. So there's two aspects of that. And one I just wanted to mention for people that if they want to go to this meeting, it is tomorrow night. Is um, Wednesday night, the 16th of November at the Casper Community Center at six o'clock. And they're going to be addressing the CAL FIRE, a fuel break plan of creating fuel breaks all around Jackson State Forest, but also um, less controversially, the the possibility of communities applying for funds and help from CAL FIRE. And remembering that CAL FIRE is a massive and not monolithic entity. It has four distinct branches, and one is the fire protection and prevention, and the other is the forest management. So did people at the fuel break talk about that there's this growing body of evidence that fuel breaks 
don't really do much unless there's actually people there to defend them? No, they didn't. I'd be curious to hear more about that research. Yeah, it seems like in all of the largest fires in the state in the last five, seven years, they've been wind-driven, and the fuel breaks have been essentially meaningless unless there's a serious team of firefighters there to do anything. And that does bring it back that they they did talk about wind-driven fires, that you can have, you know, I won't make up percentages, but some vast majority of the time, this would be helpful, would be a staging area for air tankers, for equipment. But if you have these wind events, um, that those are really hard to respond to, that all the preparation you could do could get erased by big wind-driven fires where you just can't get in there to yeah. your yeah. shade of field break. So what did you talk about? What did the JAG talk about? when you were down at Camp 1, which is Camp 1 on the Noya River? So we actually didn't go to Camp 1. We stayed up um, right at the, right where we would turn off to go to Camp 1. We stayed right by Highway 20. The top of Road 350. Yep, thank you. Um, we reviewed the previous meeting minutes from August. Um, we heard about JDSF operational updates from administration, forest management, research, and recreation. Um, and we talked about the budget and a JDSF fire plan. So did you realize when you got on the JAG how much of this kind of busy work you'd have to do? Yes, from previous commitments with working on community processes. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. so have you had an opportunity to, to make any recommendations? I see. Well, the way that the JAG can make recommendations are in motions proposed, seconded, and approved. So we had some of those today. And um, I don't know the mechanism of how we'll go about it given government to government consultation. But I appreciate that one of my JAG colleagues brought up, this is really important that there was a May letter from Priscilla Hunter mm -hmm. of the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians from the formal subcommittee of archeology span that has been unanswered that from people in connection with Priscilla Hunter say there's been no answer from Cal fire. So um, some of the, However, this gets talked about formally because some of the content is confidential and that's how it is that the JAG would like to hear back that some communication has been offered in response to Priscilla's letter. Mm -hmm. So, and then another way, so how does the JAG have input while we're at a meeting proposing a motion and then coming up is the revision of the management plan mm -hmm. for Jackson and the call to make that revision earlier than 2026, which is when it would have been. Yes, and I know a number of the other JAG members have mentioned that that's really why they're staying on the JAG is because they want to participate in this. Are you going to participate in the, re the revision, the rewriting of the management plan? Yep, absolutely. So the last two JAG meetings, there have been calls for the JAG to recommend a total halt on logging and everything else while the co-management is being worked out. Uh, 
and uh, the JAG has been resistant to doing this. And it seems to be the will of a lot of the public that this is what would happen because it feels like continuing logging it undermines good faith negotiations. And there was money allocated by the California Natural Resources Agency to keep the state forest system going. And in fact, last year it was $10 million, which is 250% of the Jackson annual budget in the last number of years. So if this were, if somebody, somebody were to bring this up as a motion, would you support it? That's something that I would need to review with my organization. I really understand the impulse to say pause until we work this out. And um, whether, so what I heard at the May meeting was whether we call it a moratorium or strategic pause, we need to stop until we understand each other better and have good faith negotiations Mm -hmm. or have a new management plan. And so I'm, Agreeing, I'm meeting your question with, I hear that yeah, yeah. all the way around of stop and until we're on better footing and a response of we have stopped from Cal Fire and we have contracts. We're not going to go into breach of contract. So I don't have it in front of me. We did talk about the budget today and how that $10 million has been allocated. It's mm-hmm. not fully spent or allocated yet, but um, so that's something that uh, Cal Fire or I could share for the show notes. Mm-hmm. Yes, that would be great. Uh, in the past, and I know that you can't comment on timber harvest plans that have already happened, but up until recently, the JAG's primary job was to, to review timber harvest plans and to make a recommendation on them. And then Cal Fire could do what they wanted to with the recommendation that a lot of the timber harvest plans in the recent years that have been put forward have been in areas that were allocated as the as either matrix, which is a particular land designation within Jackson or older forest development area. And the older forest development area is supposed to provide a contiguous line going north and south and then east and west for wildlife, a contiguous corridor. And right now there are no timber harvest plans for the JAG to review. But if timber harvest plans come up and there is something where it's – and I realize you can't necessarily comment – but if it is breaking the older forest development area, if it's cutting into the continuity of it, how do you feel about that? Again, I would be in a collaborative process with my JAG colleagues and my organization, and the league cares deeply about promoting these older, these late serial stages, so older forest development after it's been cut and it's regrown, and the important of the importance of habitat connectivity for wildlife. That's really key. There's more uh, native biodiversity in older forests. Yeah. Thank you so much. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. We are speaking with Joanna Nelson, Ph.D., the Director of Science and Conservation Planning for the Save the Redwoods League. So how would you like to see the JDSF Management Plan look, and how would you like to see Save the Redwoods League contribute to this in the future? I'll start with the second part of your question. I'd like to see Save the Redwoods League participate with examples 
of what we've done in projects where we're involved or properties that we've owned before we've transferred them to the public. And Redwoods Rising is just one example of that. There are other examples in Montgomery Woods, but where we've conducted a program of conservation thinning or ecological thinning, and that means having goals, again, towards this structure that will grow into old growth with clumps of trees, gaps of trees, gets called variable density thinning, which like sounds is some points we're going to thin it more and other patches we're going to thin it less. You know, it's not uniform across the forest. And that when you have ecological goals and a prescription from a forester, you may have timber you can sell, but that's not the goal. So you don't, you don't have to stay within a commercial timber highest yield or, you know, highest sale price. And so you um, have ecological objectives. That's something that the league can do on league held properties. It's different on a state forest with many communities involved and tribal native nations. Um, And that's something we can Mm -hmm. contribute. I'm really excited in a new management plan to see even more mentions of climate, climate resilience, wildfire resilience, and not just mentions, but the the ground, the underpinning behind them, um, and the opportunity to have public input. It, it does matter as much as people feel like they're running into walls to have public input on what this management plan is. Mm-hmm. What steps do you see we could, would, should we take to achieve these changes? I really appreciate a white paper by JAG members Charlie Schneider and Amy Wynn, mm-hmm. both of whom are non-Indigenous, and it's about tribal co-management. I mm-hmm. think that's really important um, foundation of a new plan. And I think, again, the, the people to talk about co-management and what that should be are the Native nations involved in Jackson. So that's a really huge piece of figuring out what what is co-management, what goes in the Jackson management plan, and what is separate as government-to-government negotiations. And I think it's important to talk about uneven age stands. So we have trees of many ages, and we do have older forests, and we know what we're managing for, and we know that we're attached by necessity to a 19, to 1947 legislation that says this will be a commercial forest. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much we can stretch from there. That's something I'd like to learn more about is that legislation, um, but the ability to say this is a research and demonstration forest and we research open questions. We research things we don't know about yet rather than those that we already know the answer to. Yeah, thank you. Because a lot of people definitely see that it seems like we're just tweaking things slightly to ask the same question again. And within the people who are trying to change the management of Jackson, there's a lot of, a, a, a huge diversity of opinion. And not everybody is all against logging. But we definitely question the validity of research and demonstration when the bottom line is the bottom line. 
when there's the profit motive skews things and you have a 500 acre timber harvest plan with a 10 acre demonstration it seems backwards i have kind of a related question and this comes from an interview i did a few months ago with somebody with with people at emerald earth sanctuary above boonville and they have a small property a few hundred acres and they are really doing a lot of prescribed burning there. They're working hard to restore the forest. And they brought in a, a timber operator to do a non-industrial timber management plan. And the timber operator, the, the, the fallers and the workers had a very hard time understanding what they were trying to do. And I'm curious, since you're saying that Save the Redwoods League is trying to restore these properties through some form of management, are you able to educate or um, help the timber operators figure out how to do this in a more ecological fashion? Absolutely. And I'd like to acknowledge our land stewardship manager, Anthony Castaños. He's had a lot of interactions. We've found that the timber operators we get to work with really know exactly what we're talking about. Like They are the professionals we want to be working with and that talking about ecological goals and thinning is a shift that they're able to make. And I saw that. So right before working for the league, I was working with the indigenous land trust, the Amamutsun land trust in the Southern part of Santa Cruz County and East to Pinnacles is their traditional territory. And so we were working as partners to state parks with ecological prescriptions. So in that case, the Native Stewardship Corps and I were the fellers. <laughs> but just having that experience and the the other professionals we worked with, at, that's who we needed as our partners were licensed mm-hmm. timber operators who yeah. were great. Yeah, yeah it, it's hard for a lot of people who have had generations of their family working in the forest. And there is a certain... Um, there is an ethic to being out there that's both a wilderness and an outdoor ethic and also the feeling like, hey, I want to cut a big tree. And uh, it's amazing that I can do this. It's just this achievement that I've been able to pull it off. And to go out there and just cut small trees is hard for some people. And that's what we're asking when we actually are talking about restoration, mostly. Is there anything you'd like to add? I'd like to appreciate, again, all the members of different communities that are showing up to participate and make this work. And I would like to add that I see a role for a professional facilitator in these public meetings and JAG meetings that more connection and understanding each other rather than the disjunct of okay, the time says now we have to go to the next agenda point or, okay, this is just locking horns. This is just straight conflict of you're not telling us what's actually going on and you're not hearing what we're trying to tell you. So I'd I'd like to see some more support for the communication so that people can connect around their ideas and, and their values. Yeah, this is not a new idea. In 2008, as the litigation that shut down logging in Jackson 
was ending, the JAG was created, and it was a pretty diverse board, including you know Vince Taylor and a few other very extreme, not extreme, but very dedicated environmentalists and timber operators, and they worked for two and a half years, and they had a mediator, a professional mediator, and they created a plan that everybody agreed to, 134 pages, which appears to have been sidelined and tossed by the Board of Forestry. And so hopefully next time (laughs) that won't be the case. Yeah, I think that that's a really exciting moment when people start to coalesce from what looks like impossible conflict into a path forward with each other. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here and taking the time after 10 hours out in the woods. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's really a privilege to be part of this working group and to be here talking to all of you on the radio. Ah, Thanks, Joanna.
You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour, and that was Joanna Nelson, Ph.D., the Director of Science and Conservation Planning for the Save the Redwoods League. I'm just a poor, wayfaring stranger. Approximately a year and a half ago, the trail stewards were contacted by a person from a Southern California mountain organization called the Friends of Little Bear. They were in the process of fighting something that they saw as a pretty ill-conceived fuel reduction project in the forest near the community that they lived. Most people don't know that the Coalition Save Jackson and the Friends of Little Bear gave help and advice to each other. Through our contacts, the Friends of Little Bear got some essential help that you'll hear about later in the interview from the California Native Plant Society. And let's take a 15-minute side trip down to San Bernardino County. I'm speaking with one of the plaintiffs from the Friends of Little Bear. He prefers to remain anonymous for the moment. Yes. Thanks for having me on, Chad. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Can you tell us about the Friends of Little Bear? So Friends of Little Bear was formed last November. Mm-hmm. When Cal Fire showed up and su- surprised us, we didn't know if they were ever going to show up. The HOA that we live under didn't really make it clear what the details were. Mm-hmm. November, early last November, one of my neighbors heard chainsaws, texted me, and I immediately went up the mountain and saw several units of Cal Fire destroying our trees. Hmm. Uh, it wasn't a pleasant sight. Yeah. Where are you? Upper Little Bear is west of Lake Arrowhead, approximately mm-hmm. just one mile, less than one mile. It's a historic cabin community built in approximately the 1920s. Mm-hmm. We have a total of 56 acres. 40 acres were being targeted for Cal Fire to cl- clear. It was, as they call it, thinning, but it was more like a clear. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our community has been around a long time. We have a lot of, we have a decent amount of old growth trees and this is the first time this kind of project has taken place. We've had two or three other fuel reduction projects, but they weren't to this degree. This was 20 feet apart. They were planning to take out trees 20 feet apart and any tree 12 inches in diameter or less, which is, is quite a lot of trees. It's more than I've seen. My family's been in this area since the 1940s. So I, I kind of know how this forest has evolved mm-hmm. and, and this was very destructive. Yeah. Oh, what is the forest type that you're dealing with? It's a mixed conifer forest. So we have about four or five different species of, of conifers. And then we have black oaks and uh, we have ceanothus and we have uh, manzanita. So I imagine they were doing this for, you know, fire fuel reduction. What was the problem with it? Were they, was it just unannounced? Had they done surveys? Had they gotten a permit for this or... There was virtually nothing done. In fact, we were hardly informed. It was discussed casually in HOA meetings. But we, when we asked for details, they couldn't provide any. Actually, they didn't provide any details until the very last minute. Like it was about May of, yeah, May 2021. Mm-hmm. And when we got the details, we found out that there was no environmental studies done whatsoever. And we had asked for any environmental studies that had been done and they kept saying, well, we'll get the documents, but we never got any documents until the last minute. And then 
it turns out that we have a threatened species on the property and they did no environmental studies. The threatened species is a southern rubber boa. Uh-huh. And it's it's it, it turns out that the HOA didn't even know that the southern rubber boa existed. Huh. Even the board the board members did not know and and one of the board members had been around for 40 years in in the neighborhood. They had no idea. The southern rubber boa is nocturnal. So it's hardly ever seen by anyone. Huh. I saw one. I saw one for the first time in June of 2021. It was on a cold early June day, and it happened to be just out sunning. And I had never seen one all my life. Wow! So uh, um, it's just one of those creatures that, because it's nocturnal, people don't see it, so they don't think it even even exists. And is the property there jointly owned? Does each owner have an individual parcel, and you're part of the homeowners association? Yes, it's jointly owned. There's 36 lots. And we have 40 acres of common land, forest land. And that acreage is kind of away from the main part of the cabin community. Uh-huh. And it's it, the area is not really used. It, it adjoins, it's directly adjacent to a 180-acre nature preserve owned by a, a land trust called the San Bernardino Mountain Land Trust. Mm-hmm. In addition, it's considered by the, the county of San Bernardino as a wildlife corridor. So... Given our 40 acres plus the 180 acres, that's quite a bit of land that is used by the, the, the animals in the area. Mm-hmm. Well, fuel reduction is fine, but they didn't do any studies, any surveys. And they just were using a, a general plan what they would use anywhere in the state, 20 feet apart between trees and 12 inches or less. Mm-hmm. This area is pretty unique in that it's, it's considered a... Um, an alpine sky island that's rare in Southern California, we get about 35 to 40 inches on average of precipitation annually. Wow. That's quite a bit. And that's why we have spotted owls. We have flying squirrels. And then we have the threatened Southern rubber boa. And they exist in this area because it's such a diverse, biologically diverse area. Wow. You have spotted owls there. I've seen spotted owls and I've heard them. Wow. At night, obviously. And you said there were old growth trees there. What species are they? Uh, ponderosas and white fir. Uh huh. What is your elevation? 5,300 feet elevation. Did Cal Fire have an arrangement with any members of the Homeowners Association to be able to do this? Yes, they did, but it was kept a secret. So I, I, got, I did a public records request with Cal Fire. And they, in, in 2019, not September, but in 2019, they had negotiated with one particular person that was on our HOA board uh-huh. to come to come on the property and, and to consider doing a project of this sort. But the, the rest of the community wasn't informed of what was happening. Only this one person was dealing with Cal Fire. It wasn't until about April or May of 2021 that they introduced us to the the, the formal nature of this project, but they never provided any written details of this project, mm-hmm. meaning the HOA never provided written details. So Cal Fire had been dealing with this one particular person on the HOA board, and then he was conveying to the board members, but uh, presumably, but we weren't getting any information. The members of the community weren't getting information about what was happening with this project, which was going to impact all of us, not only with the destruction of trees, but noise, trucks, And then the surrounding area as well, the other communities that surround us would be affected as well. Mm -hmm. So they never did their due diligence to inform the wider community, including our own members. So you formed, Friends of Little Bear formed, 
And what was your strategy at that point? The general strategy was to push back Cal Fire and get them to come to the table to negotiate a mitigated plan and more environmental awareness of what was happening on the 40 acres. Mm -hmm. Because their plan was just to come in and start cutting. Well, and that's what they did. But we were trying to bring them off the forest, you know, stop cutting off the forest and to the table to talk about this. But we probably produced 10 letters from different organizations. And the organizations included the Center for Biological Diversity, the California Native Plant Society, the San Bernardino Valley Audubon Society, the Save Our Forest Association in Lake Arrowhead, mm-hmm. the California Chaparral Institute. All right. They stopped for several weeks early this year, and we thought that we had won. But then, as you know, they come back and they don't they don't announce it. So they came back and start cutting fiercely. Mm-hmm. But our plan was to bring them to the table and negotiate a mitigated plan. So when they came back, they, you um, litigated? Yeah, there was a pause for uh, probably February to April. And we thought that we had some ability to negotiate. And, and we did it to some degree. We, we had the native, California Native Plant Society had gotten involved and with, with our manzanitas on the land. We have quite a few manzanitas, which are somewhat protected, the community of manzanita. This particular species is called a pink bract mm-hmm. manzanita, and it has some protection. So they did listen. Cal Fire did listen to a degree because they had been cutting quite a few manzanita without realizing that the manzanita does not re-sprout. This particular species does not re-sprout. Cal Fire did not do their homework. They did not realize that the pink bract does not re-sprout. So they had pretty much hacked a large area of manzanita to the ground to where they would not be able to ever re-sprout. Mm-hmm. So the Plant Society produced a pretty fine letter that, that made Cal Fire rethink their plan on the manzanita. And at that point, they they quieted down and they didn't do any work. And then when they came back, they actually mitigated and they didn't cut as many manzanita. They, they came back in uh, April approximately, and they just would not stop cutting. So we thought, well, we produced about all the letters we could produce. We've had um, some conversations back and forth, but we didn't get a stoppage to the program. So we called in an attorney and environmental attorney. Mm -hmm. And we got the process rolling in late June. And finally, we got a, uh, a court hearing for July 20th. Mm-hmm. And on that particular day, I was outside the court and I heard that I got a text from the attorney and he said, we did pretty well. And so I, I after that, I was pretty excited. I raced up the mountain to see if the units were still there. They were. But as soon as I got there, they kind of stopped and then they sat around for about two hours and then they left and they've never been back since. Hmm. So, uh, it seems to be a win. They they didn't say they abandoned. The way they put it was that the project is finished. So both uh, the, the both sides communicate. The both attorneys communicated with one another one another that the project was finished. So that's the way they put it. Is that and they weren't finished. They were probably eighty percent finished. Mm-hmm. But but in their 
in their sense, they wanted to just back away because of the court hearing and they were afraid of the next court hearings, perhaps. So they haven't been back and they, both attorneys agreed that the project was finished. That's great. Were you able to save the ponderosa pines and the old white fir? Yeah, the old growth, they weren't going to touch anyway, unless those trees were diseased or dead. Uh-huh. So it, it, with the old growth, they didn't touch. It's, they're going after the trees 12 inches or less, which, you know, in our forest, we, we need to keep those for the next generations. They weren't considering the next generations. They were just taking out everything that was 12 inches or less, mm-hmm. 20 feet apart. What was your basic legal argument in court? Our legal argument was that the southern rubber boa is a threatened California is a California threatened species, and they had done no environmental impact report on this. There was nothing done whatsoever. And in fact, the HOA, as I mentioned, didn't even know these existed were yeah. present. They didn't even know they were present on the property. So I felt that that was our group felt that that was irresponsible of the land us as landowners to not do our due diligence on what is on this land, mm-hmm. including the other creatures like the, the spotted owl and the flying squirrels. But yeah. either, neither one of those have protection in this forest, but uh, they're, they're still in the sensitive species. Yes. Yeah. So your assumption is, is that it's done if both attorneys agreed. <laughs> yes. It's in writing and it's in the court record that the project is finished. Uh-huh. So, so we're, we're presuming, well, that legally, that's pretty much a, you know, a finished deal. If they were to come back, we can use that record as, hey, you guys said you were finished. Yes. What kind of advice would you give other groups that might enter into similar legal conflicts with CAL FIRE or another state agency? I would recommend uh, taking action sooner than later. Because uh-huh. <laughs> the, the letter writing we produced, while it was interesting, it, we weren't getting a lot of traction. So I would seek out legal advice as soon as possible when, when the forest areas are being destroyed like this because mm-hmm. the letters were going on deaf ears. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we got some traction, as I mentioned, with the Manzanita, and they did alter a little bit of their – they did a little less cutting, but it's hard to gauge that because there were different crews out almost every other day. They never kept the same crews, so – Every crew is going to cut a little bit different. Yeah. So uh, that's a frustrating part too with Cal Fire is that they don't, they're not consistent in the crews that come out. Uh huh. Were these um, prisoner crews? Some of them were. And then others were just uh, units, local units. Is there anything listeners can do to help you at this point? Well, we're still fundraising for the, the, the legal fees. So if anyone is willing to donate to our, to our cause, we would welcome that. We'd be thankful. And there is a group that's nonprofit that's accepting donations, correct? Yes, Save Our Forest Association out of Lake Arrowhead, California. Okay, is so right now two thousand dollars in the hole for legal fees. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for doing the work to save that bit of forest down there. Thank you, Chad. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the time.
That was the Miller Family Band performing live at Camp One at the Woodlands. The very last minute, we have an entry from Chad Hansen of the John Muir Project and also the Sierra Club National Board of Directors. Chad Hansen's John Muir Project was one of the people who put in letters in support of the Friends of Little Bear. Uh, I'm Dr. Chad Hansen, forest and fire ecologist with the John Muir Project. And uh, just a quick comment on the Little Bear uh, so-called fuel reduction project and why this is such a wrong-headed approach. Uh, this is in mixed conifer forests in the Lake Arrowhead area uh, uh, in the San Bernardino Mountains in Southern California. And basically the project is uh, focused on this uh, logging and chaparral removal of several dozen acres of forest uh, in, uh, in a wild area with a community nearby but not adjacent to homes. And this is, there's two major problems here. First one is the only effective way to protect homes from wildland fire is to actually help homeowners uh, harden their homes, make them more fire resistant, and do defensible space pruning within 100 feet of homes, not several hundred feet like they're uh, doing in, in the Little Bear Project. Um, and uh, you know, so that's the first problem. The second problem is they're doing a lot of tree cutting and that forest a lot of the forest canopy cover is comprised of trees that are 12, 10, 8 inches in diameter. And, um, and that's, you know, they're really essentially clear-cutting the understory of the forest, mature and old-growth chaparral, and a lot of these uh, younger mature trees. And basically what they're doing is they're changing the microclimate of the forest. They're um, reducing the cooling shade of the forest canopy cover, which is creating hotter, drier and, uh, and windier conditions, and it's more conducive to wildfire. Basically, it means that if a fire occurs, it's going to spread faster and hotter toward the homes. It's not a forest protection or a community protection strategy. It's really just more uh, cow fire, misguided uh, logging and forest management, and um, it's the wrong approach. And if you'd like to help them out pay their legal fees, they could use every little bit. This has been a pretty much bare-bones operation that did some great things. Go to www.saveorforestassoc.org. Once you're there, you can make a donation and also at the same time send them an email at the contact page and let them know that that donation you just made was for the Friends of Little Bear. So that is Save Our Forest a Sock. .org. We would like to thank you for spending this time with us on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour, the third Tuesday of the month at 7 p.m. And we would certainly like to extend our gratitude to our guests, Joanna Nelson, Ph.D., and that anonymous friend of Little Bear. I think that guy donates the pledge drive every time. Maybe a bunch of times. wonder if he votes in the names of dead people. To Gene Parsons for the banjo music. And also the immortal Clarence White on guitar. You can listen to archived episodes at mendocinotrailstewards.org on the Media Links page. And also subscribe to the KZYX Public Affairs Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This show is a production of KZYX, listener-powered community radio for Mendocino County and beyond. And also of disquietmedia.blue. The views and opinions expressed are not those of the management or staff of any station that airs this show, but those of ourselves and our guests only. And I would like to leave you with the words of Robin Wall Kimmerer, member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. 
What we do here matters. We all live downstream. Thanks again for listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. See you next month. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.